Rebuilding Your Life, Moving from Disaster to Prosperity with Susan Shireko, where we help you transform your life by changing what you're telling yourself. Whatever your circumstances, you can experience health, financial security, and a sense of well-being once again. And now, here's your host, Susan Shireko. On behalf of Rebuilding Your Life Radio and the Train Your Brain, Claim Your Power Calls, welcome When our guest, Robert Kershaw, was a young boy, he witnessed a bully hurt his friend, which has affected who he, the the friend was affected by Down syndrome. And it made a very deep impact on Bob. He knew that he wanted to do something in his life that would change the bullying attitude or change the way people treated one another. So 60 years later, he has done that. And he commemorated his aha moment in, in his book, If I Die Before I Wake, A Caregiver's Journey. Please join me in welcoming Robert Kershaw to the call. Hello, Bob. Welcome. Hello, Susan. Great to be here. Well, it's good to have you. It's an old, that old phrase, it's nice to be seen. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. Bob. Bob, your friend with Down syndrome was a big part of your early life. And why was that? Well, I was about 10 years old, and uh, there was a uh, family moved in, and um, I didn't really know them that well initially. And uh, their son came over a couple of times, and he would walk up to me, throw a ball to me, and I would throw it back, and then he would smile and run away. And I never, you know, I thought it was kind of strange, but uh, he did that several times. And uh, uh, because I really didn't know much about um, Down syndrome or anything, I thought he was Chinese uh, or Asian. And uh, so I told my mother that he was. Uh, I have a Chinese friend now, and um, she said, "Well, we'll invite him over for supper sometime." So I did. And after supper, he left and went home, and my mother asked me to do um, to help dry the dishes, which kind of meant that I was either in for a lecture or a discussion, um, <laughs> you know, a captive audience type thing. And right. uh, she explained it to me that he he was a mongoloid, which is what they used to use, uh, the name they used to use for Down syndrome uh, was mongoloidism or whatever. Um and so I was kind of disappointed he wasn't Chinese. And then I looked up the word mongoloid in the uh, encyclopedia, and it showed uh, from Mongolia. The, the word comes from Mongolia or Mongoloid. Um, and uh, so I, it looked like it was close enough to China, so I was pretty happy about that. So I was like, you know, I still didn't get that he, it was an affliction, you know. Right. And, um, but I became friends with him, and... Uh, we kind of kidded around a lot and, you know, whatnot. But I noticed, like, the kids in the neighborhood would kind of, um, you know, like push him around. And because of who he was and, and what he had, he would always think that something like that was, was a game. So he was always laughing. Uh, he got pushed around a little bit, and then he would try to push somebody else, and they would push him harder. And he would, you know, he thought it was a game. And I knew it was it was a bullying thing. Uh, or he, you know, they, they weren't really doing something nice to him. So I would jump in and I would tell, tell Charlie to, you know, run, you know, just go. And then I would be either beat up or they would harass me. And, uh, so this went on for a while. And then, uh, I had to go to camp that summer. And when 
the um, when I asked him if he was going to go to camp, he said, no, they don't take people like me. And so it, it was kind of like, I really didn't understand that at all. It just didn't make sense to me. Why wouldn't they take somebody like him, you know? And because he was a lot of fun, he was their friend and whatnot. So I went to camp. When I came back, the family had moved away. His fa- I guess his father was in the service. And um, so they had moved away. And, of course, at 10 years old, uh, I felt like I was a failure, right? I didn't meet up to his standards or whatever. Um, so I, you know, I got really upset about it and I, kind of mentioned it to my mother and she said, well, no, it's, it's, you know, they just moved away. It's not you or whatever, but I still kind of felt guilty about it that I didn't do enough to, to, you know, to keep them around or whatever. And, uh, and apparently my, my mother told me this later, uh, that I said, I wanted to do something to change the way the kids treated people like him. And so I didn't, really think about that at all until later on when I was in high school and I was with a group called Senior Teens Aid Retarded which is the way it was then uh, now it's called uh, Senior Teens Aid uh, Recreation and mm-hmm. it's a group of teenagers that would take them out uh, take kids with disabilities out for the week uh, for like on a Sunday or a Saturday either bowling or a movie or a dance or something, you know, and we just really got together and we became a real close-knit group and almost like a family. And one of the kids' um, brother uh, was going to camp, and I said, are you going to go to camp with them? And he said, no. And he said almost the exact same word, no, they don't take people like me. And I thought, yeah, I've heard that before, you know, and it really got me upset. And so for about two years, I guess, I decided uh, at that time I was about 17 and at, for about two years I, I started thinking about what could I do to to make that change or make a difference and whatnot. So I started creating in my mind mostly uh, uh, a camp where we could get together and do it and when I kind of brought it out publicly because uh, I had to talk to the Association for Retarded Children at that time um, mm-hmm. and and also uh, the state, uh, all these different groups and whatnot, I had to discuss it with them. And they said, well, you know, you pr- uh, you wouldn't be able to do it because you're all teenagers, you know. It doesn't, you know, you have too many hoops to jump. And so, I, I you know, when somebody tells me I can't do something, I, I go ahead and do it anyway, <laughs> usually. Uh, or I, at least I try anyway. And uh, I got together with the 30 teenagers and... Um, and I, you know, we, we, it was quite a sell for the, for the group because they were like, you know, do we really want to get into this? And, you know, this is a lot of work and blah, blah, blah. But uh, over a period of time, they kind of got into it and they had enough faith in me that I would be able to acquire location for a camp um, and, and figure out a way to raise two to $3,000 to send all these kids free uh, and ourselves and rent the camp. And uh, in 1969, June of 1969, we had our first uh, week of camp, and um, it was such a success. We had 60 kids with dis- with disabilities, 30 teenagers, and two adults who uh, basically were just there to advise uh, or supervise, rather. And, um, you know, it was up to us to really control and run the camp uh, the way we felt 
we wanted to do it. And it was such an amazing experience for all the kids, even to this day they talk about it. Um, I've been noticing, though, that a lot of the a lot of the campers and a lot of the, the uh, teenagers are in their 70s and 60s, and, you know, they're passing away one by one. So, you know, having uh, I'm, my next book, or one of my next books is going to be A Place Called Happiness, which is what the camp was called, uh, and it was spelt wrong because I can't spell for, for whatever. <laughs> uh, and But it turned out that that's, that misspelled word, H-A-P-P-Y-N-E-S-S, was a lure for people to come over and say, do you know that's spelled wrong? And I said, yeah, do you want to hear about the camp now? And uh, <laughs> it, it, gave us a, it gave us a chance to really talk to a lot of people about it, and we ended up raising mm-hmm. a lot of money. Yeah. Right. And then, know, right after, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, you, you have, this is a long-term vision that you had. Uh, how mm-hmm. did you organize yourself or um, set, Set it up so you knew what your goal, what goals you had to meet in order to bring it about. Um, well, I, I ended up turning one of my my mother's house had a little tiny room, uh, which used to be sort of a bedroom for my grandparents, and uh, I turned it into a, sort of a library in, a, in an office. And every night, like I was going to school, I was going to college at the time. Uh, or high school at, uh, initially, and then then I went to um, junior college after that, um, and and plus I was working, so I you know most of my time um, was spent either at night, late at night, usually uh, just sitting there. And um, th- there's one thing I found out just recently: uh, they had a uh, um, s- I, it was kind of an unofficial um, survey. Uh, I, I think part of it was done with uh, Dartmouth College and or, or a, group, a group of people that were associated with them, and they were interviewing people who may have had um, autism or ADD or ADHD when they were kids, and they and they were in their 70s now. So um, I went and, and filled out all the forms and whatnot and did and answered all the questions. And what I found was that um, apparently I must have had some sort of autism because um, what they were saying was that I could, like when I was a, when I was a kid, I would kind of be um, on my own or I was more comfortable by myself than with other people. Uh, and yet I could be really very social. So I, I had kind of like a, a flip-flop thing. Um, but when I was by myself, my mind, I used to call it um, uh, my, the voices in my head. Uh, sometimes they were very loud. They were just, you know, all these thoughts in my head going back and forth, back and forth. Um, and I, I, I kind of liken it to when you have something going on in your life and you try to get some sleep, but your mind keeps going and you can't mm-hmm. stop mm-hmm. it. You know? Well, that, mm-hmm. that's the way I was in a lot of ways. And also, they they felt that I had, um, and I think I still have it because I I don't stop, uh, ADD, uh, which is like, I'm, I'm I've got like seven or eight projects going at the same time, and I do a little bit here, and then my brain can't function anymore, and then I start on the or I start working on the other one or another one there, and then I can go back to the other one later. But um, so I have sort of an ADD thing, and I think that's probably why I succeeded so well because my brain really just kind of like focused in on it uh, at a really young age. I was only, I think I was 
it was 1969 when we did it. So I was 20, I was about 20 years old when I actually mm-hmm. had the camp. So it was between the ages of 18 and 20 that I created the camp. And um, I was going to college and I called, I considered myself a, a straight D student um, <laughs> in high school only uh, because I just couldn't, funk, I couldn't, uh, if the test had like 20, 10 questions, I could do six and then my brain kind of shut down. And luckily my, uh, my um, advisor or uh, supervisor at the high school uh, kind of noticed what was going on and uh, he was, I think he was way ahead of, the, ahead of his time. But he, he said, listen, when you take your test, you're going to come up and take it in my office. So I did. And when I got up to a certain point, I, I couldn't go any further. And he said, come on, let's go for a walk or let's shoot some hoops or whatever. And then we went back to the office and he said, okay, finish your test. And I did. From For my junior year and my senior year, um, I became an a, a straight-A student. And it was basically because my, my I was allowing space for my brain to, to kind of uh, regroup or whatever you call it. And, uh, and when I was finishing the test, I knew all the answers. I just didn't, my brain just didn't function when I, you know, when I, uh, after a certain point, uh, time or whatever. And, right, and I right. think that, go ahead. No, just, I mean, that's a, that's an amazing thing that someone had the, was, or the, was aware enough of, of the way the mind works and the way it learns and the way it spits out information later that they were able to see what was happening and say, okay, time to take him out. Um, was there a visual cue that gave him anyone an idea that uh, you, were, you were locked in step for a moment? Yeah, I usually stopped writing or I, tap, I was tapping my pen or, uh, or pencil. Um, I would take the pencil and scratch my head or... Um, you know, to, or or I would just look up, try to look out the window or whatever. And I, you know, um, there were a lot of times, even when I was younger, even in grammar school, if I was next to a window, um, I had no clue what was going on in the in the um, in the classroom. In fact, one time I was, uh, <laughs> in, in some ways, I almost uh, didn't mind getting caught because they put me in the corner, and I could sit there <laughs> and I could let my mind take me anywhere I wanted to go, you know, I mean, I, I had mm-hmm, a great mm-hmm. imagination, you know, and, but it was one time when I was sitting in at the desk and, um, I was totally embarrassed about it, but it, it's, it was, it was kind of like, you know, it woke me up to really what was happening to me. And I, I was kind of daydreaming and apparently I was licking the page of the, of the book that I was supposed to be reading. And, you know, I had it up and I was licking or I had licked the page or something or and I didn't even know I was doing that until uh, the girl in front of me said, Mrs. Kernan, Bobby's rick- you know, licking the book, you know, and that kind of woke me up a little bit. And, of course, she put me in the corner and said, no licking books or whatever. And uh, so I had to, you know, sit in the corner, which, you know, was fine with me because I, you know, I, I let my mind wander. And I was there. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, was, I was in heaven. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think can- a lot of. A lot of that helped me even in, in later on because when I worked in the schools, I could see kids doing the same, same things I did, and I knew where they were coming from so I could relate to what they were doing. And it, oh, it really helped what me. What a gift. Yeah. Yeah. What a gift yeah. to be able to see that, yes. Yeah. Um, 
Now, you have a couple of other skills that you've mentioned to me and, and interesting trips that you've taken, uh, mm-hmm. unrelated to what might be quite quite your job. Um, mm-hmm. But things like um, you're, you are a photographer? Yes, <laughs> I was for many years. I haven't picked up the camera in quite a while. Um, I think part of it has to do with um, I'm sort of a purist as far as film is concerned. Um mm-hmm. And it, it was kind of like the I could take a really fantastic photo, and it was actually because of my skills um, and learning about the camera and knowing how much light had to go through and all that stuff. When it came to digital, it was like I didn't have to do all of that, so I was it was kind of like I felt like I was cheating, you know. So I really mm. didn't, you know, even though. You know, I could I I go around all the time and I see something and I say, oh God, I wish I had my camera with me. And I have my phone and I could probably take that picture, but you know, it, it's and and it's always instant gratification on on the phone or on your mm-hmm. on the uh, digital cameras. But it's still not the same as taking film and and actually you know black and white film or whatever. Uh, I used to love slides. Um, you know, mm-hmm. working mm-hmm. with slides and whatnot, and um, so I did a lot of that for for years. I I traveled all over the place. Um, uh, I did a program called uh, "If I Die Before I Wake" with people who had HIV, and I would photograph them and I'd give them a portrait, and then I would uh, take that picture and put it side by side with a written uh, story that they wrote themselves about who they were or what was going on or what it was like to be HIV positive. And the uh, the exhibit went. It was at the Cathedral of Saint John the Divine for about six months, and then it traveled all over the, all over the country. It was uh, it went to several colleges. Um, it was in uh, had quite a few malls, um, so it, it kind of traveled a lot. And then after that, it was just kind of like nobody really wanted to you know. People didn't want to talk about AIDS anymore for after a certain amount of time there. And mm-hmm. so I had to kind of, you know, I kind of rolled it in. But the back part of my book has not their, um, uh, not their pictures, but it has their stories. And I had to use their first name or initials because uh, even though they had passed away and gave me permission when they were alive to uh, use their picture and the story, uh, their families were very upset about it because they didn't want people to know they had a son who died of AIDS or a, a daughter daughter who was uh, addicted or whatever. And um, so they didn't, you know, they, they asked me not to use their names or their pictures. And so, and one of the women, one of the women, one of the parents said, well, you know, if they know my name and then they know uh, the story, somebody may know who they are and kind of can relate it. And uh, so I called my publisher, and she said, well, get yourself a uh, pen name. So now I'm Eli Shaw. Okay. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> There's no connection. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, this is not the only AIDS project that you did. Um, mm-hmm. I think the, the AIDS Legacy Project was also really powerful. Yeah, that's my next book, too. It's, uh, and I have a, in, in the book itself, is, there's a chapter on legacy. Um, what legacy is, um, it came about actually, um, is um, I I had been talking to a lot of the uh, people who were dying of AIDS, and they and I kept on trying to say 
to them that you're not dying of AIDS, you're living with AIDS, you know, and mm-hmm. you can say you died of AIDS or complications from AIDS, but uh, if they're living with AIDS, that's that's different, and, I, and it's more positive. It, it gives them more life to it, and a lot of the people were saying, well, you know, because I, I asked them, I said, what's your biggest concern? And they said, well, we don't want to become a number or a statistic, and um, they were so afraid of that, uh, and they said, we we don't know what kind of a legacy we're going to be leaving. And, you know, even though they, you know, they, they, they've got families and, they, you know, the families knew them, their name would be associated with, oh, she's the one who died of AIDS, or she's the one who was an addict, or, or he's the one who um, used to shoot up or um, whatever, or they were gay or whatever. So they, it wasn't their story. It was, it was kind of like a label. And a lot of the people that I spoke to um, were were really concerned about that. And so I created the program. Um, it took me about a year to kind of put it together in, in my mind at, at first. And then uh, eventually put it down on paper. And it was, um, I was working with a group, um, a program called Sharing Community um, in, in Yonkers, uh, which was run by the Episcopal Church. Um, or sponsored by them, and there was um, I was a peer education coordinator, uh, so I got to meet a lot of the people who were HIV positive. So when I started the program, uh, I asked my uh, my supervisor if I could kind of explore this, and they said absolutely, let's let's try it out. So we did, and um, what happened was uh, the the people were looking at it, and the first question, there's three questions in the program. The first question is, if if you were to die today, how do you think you would be remembered? What do you think people would say about you if you you know if you passed away? Uh, and so they kind of explore that. They can talk to their family. They talk to uh, friends, uh, associates, um, people they work with. Um, you know, they, and and just trying to get an idea of you know what where their mindset was about you. You know, like. Um, you know, oh, he was my my best friend who died of AIDS, or you know, whatever. And and it seemed like there was always that AIDS coming into it. Um, and they didn't they wanted to be, you know, oh, that was uh, Joseph who was such a great guy, you know, and without saying the word AIDS. And so the first question, um, they had to figure out where they stood at this moment. You know, how how people could uh, would. Uh, relate to them and wh- how they would be remembered. The second question, and, and that, that's quite a process, really. It's, uh, it took sometimes three or four weeks and a couple of months or whatever to really kind of mm-hmm. pull it together. And a lot of people took a lot longer because they were afraid to ask people. So mm-hmm. it, it was kind of a, you know, there was a lot there. And then the second question after going through that is, if you were to die today, how would you like to be remembered? What are the things you would like people to say about you? And so you kind of go through that and you explore yourself. And you try to figure out who you are, how you relate to people. Um, you know, how would you, how would you like your friend to remember you? What are, what were your best memories uh, that you would love to share with them so that they will be reminded about that or whatever? Um, so that's quite a process because it take it it's in some ways it can be dangerous because you can really explore yourself to the point where 
you can almost go into a depression to realize how bad your life was or whatever. Uh, so there was there was a lot of, not danger, but there was a lot of concern about that. But it never really came, you know, it never really got to that point. It was the, They were more excited about it than anything else. And um, they were just, you know, I want people to think, you know, to remember the... Um, the dance that I used to do or, um, you know, that I was a great dancer or a great singer or whatever. So they go through that whole period and uh, come up with that. Now, the third question is what, you know, knowing the answer to both of those questions, what is it you need to do or not do in your life, uh, add or subtract, uh, uh, what what people should you be associating with and what people do you need to kind of, that, that might be toxic to you or whatever and you need to eliminate them from your life in some way uh, or not see them as much. And what are some of the tools that you can use to create the legacy that will carry on after you die? Now, the book is my legacy. So that was one of my tools. Uh, poetry <laughs> is another another tool. I did, a, I, I've done a lot of poetry. Um and um, the way I associate with people, uh, there was one thing um, I noticed that when I was when I was in school, I was teaching or not teaching. I was a, uh, a teacher's aide um, and uh, or paraeducator, and, uh, and or now they call it te- educational te- technician, which I love. Oh. Um, <laughs> so we're getting better, but the paid. K is still the same, so, um, you know. Uh, but what I found was um, whenever, and I noticed this with the students and with the teachers, whenever I wore a white shirt and maybe khaki pants, they always said, wow, you look great today, you know. But if I wore jeans and and a colored shirt or whatever, nobody would say anything to me. Nobody would mention how I looked or how I, you know. Uh, it was kind of like, you know, uh, I, I kind of explored it. Like, what you know, if I if I wore something different, how would the, you know how would people say, you know, uh, greet me or whatever? And so, mm-hmm. for the longest time, I would I, I decided I'm going to wear khaki pants, a white shirt, or a light shirt and light blue or whatever. And uh, I I comb my hair a certain way and whatnot. And what I found was people really related to me so much better and so much more positive. Um, than if I came in with jeans and a sweatshirt or uh, jeans and a sweater or, um, you know, whatever. It, it, it just, you know, they they were, they would always like, you know, hey, Bob, how you doing, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it was such a difference, and I noticed. And what I found was my legacy was I was actually creating part of my legacy, uh, and I didn't realize that until I left the school once and I used to do a slideshow for all the seniors um, every year, and the slide it was like about a about a thousand slides. It was all of their pictures from when they were kids, uh, when they were growing up, pictures of their families or whatever. And I would put all the groups of pictures into uh, to music for uh, like with uh, "You Raise Me Up." I would put that with your parents or mm-hmm. and teachers, um, uh, "Baby Mine." From from Dumbo uh, was always like all the baby pictures, you know, and so I would, you know, I do that every year. And the last year I did it, they came up and they gave me uh, kind of like a little present or a going away present or whatever. 
And one of the students got up and said, uh, we'll always remember you as the guy in the khaki pants and the white shirt, you know, um, and the one, one who had the biggest smile all the time. And I didn't realize it until that day that I was actually creating my legacy. And so part of the legacy, yeah, part of the legacy program was how you look, how you present yourself to people, how you talk to people. Um, we're leaving a legacy right now. I'm leaving a legacy with your, your, uh, with our, um, listeners. And, you know, I mean, I could get on, on, um, on the program and say, you know, well, I had a great life. You know, it was wonderful, you know, and grumble around. And that would be the legacy I left. You know, you know, that wasn't a great, um, podcast. And, right. You know, it, it's basically how you go about your life, how you treat your children, how close you mm-hmm. are, uh, the things you do for them, the smiles you have for them. You know, yeah. when you're when you're upset with them, uh, or even with your friends, when you're upset with them, show them compassion. But you you can be upset, but also show compassion and say, you know, I don't, I I love you, but I just don't like what you did. You know, <laughs> and um, so it's. You know, that whole thing. And there's so many things you can use as tools. Some people write letters to their kids so that after they die, they, they'll receive it. I'm doing something with my grandson. Uh, he's only two, and I'm 70. I'll be 73 this year. And I don't think I'll see him graduate. And if I if he does graduate and I'm still around, I may not know he's graduating, you know. Right, um, right. Mm-hmm. You know, so... What I'm doing is doing a video thing on on the um, on my computer, and I sit there and I talk to him like he's in his twenties, and I you know I tell him about who I am and what I what I like and whatnot, and I joke around with him and you know tell him some some of the things that you know and the things that I've done for him while he was you know only two years old. I, I just bought him a uh, an electric uh, four wheeler, and um, you know this is we haven't given it to him yet, but. Um, these are some of the things that I've been kind of sharing with him and also about COVID, what it was like for me to go through COVID because he was actually living through it, but didn't know it, you know? And Mm -hmm. so this is kind of an education for him. And that would be, this is going to be the legacy that I'm going to be leaving him and my granddaughter. I'm doing the same thing. Now, my son looked at me one day and, um, he, he said, well, no, that's great, but and what about me? Can you do one for me? Oh, wow. And even though you know, even though I, I've left quite a legacy with him, um, and, and you know, he he's been such an education. You know, uh, he's African American and I'm white, and his um, his mother was in the pro- program and died of AIDS, um, and uh, he his mother basically said, I you know, after I die, I want him, I want you to make sure that he's going to do okay. I want you to watch out for him. Well, I, he tells everybody that he adopted me. So now he's in his 30s, and we've, we've had such an, an amazing journey as father and son. And um, it's been in a lot of up and downs, but it's been such an amazing experience for, you know, for me. And so the legacy I'm leaving him or, and the legacy he's leaving me is the education I got about, um, you know, what the black lives are like, um, you know, we, we talk about now black lives matter. I understand that more. Um, you know, when my son kept on getting, uh, profiled or, 
stop and frisk because he was standing on the corner with some other guys. Um, or he was driving down the, the road with a new car because he was working with a with a car dealership. He was stopped because he was a black guy in a car, you know, in a nice car. So I didn't understand that until I took him to the police station one day and I asked the police why he was stopped and frisked. And they said, well, he, he looks suspicious. Well, to me, that meant, you know, he looked black and he they didn't trust that. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's he's taught me so much about, you know, the fears he has and all that stuff. And I have a fear for my grandson and my, and my son and my granddaughter in the future, mm-hmm. you know, what they're going to mm-hmm. be like. So he's, you know, those are the legacies we've, we've given each other. And this program, Legacy, um, I've also used it for high schools. Um, I used it in a, in a program that I was working with. They had a retail store for, uh, they would sell, you know, um, things that were, it was like a secondhand shop, but it was uh, to raise money for a program. And so mm-hmm. I, I talked to the whole store and I said, listen, how people relate to you and and how you re- relate to people is going to make the difference in how much money we make. And if you walk in the store and it's good music or it's 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 comfortable music, you're going to feel better. If you walk in the store and it sounds good, sounds good and looks good and smells good, and you know people greet you, you're going to be comfortable in that store. If you walk in and people are yelling at each other or cursing or whatever, people aren't going to stay. You know, so you know it's all about how how we present. You know, the, the place make it look good, make it feel good. And those are the things that are going to, you know, that's the legacy of the store. And right. I transformed that store that year pretty much. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we sales tremendously with that. So, well, so Bob, legacy goes everywhere. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. So, Bob, your book, however, is all about caregiving. And I think we, mm-hmm. it, it brings me to the point that you have, you know, you became an adopted father for your son and also for one of the people you were caregiving for. Um, mm-hmm. I think you uh, you work for Washington County Mental Health Service. Uh, right. Why don't you take us through how that all came to be? What was that about? Well, uh, Nathan, um, I, when I was uh, working with uh, the high school, uh, Nathan was going to school at that time. He was about nine or ten, I believe. Uh, he was at the elementary, and I used to see him around different places, and we, you know, I'd kid around with him once in a while, or. You know, I, he was in a wheelchair. He had cerebral palsy. I uh, had very little control over his actions and or his motion, you know, mobility. And uh, he also didn't have very many uh, verbs or very many words. And when he came to the high school or the junior high, um, they asked me if I would be willing to, to work with him. And so I, you know, I said, absolutely. I, you know, I'd love to work with him. I, I had no... And I, I had no idea what they wanted me to do with him, but I just, uh, um, and, and the thing I noticed was he was the only person in a wheelchair in the school that needed that much help. Um, and the school was not prepared for that, unfortunately. It was one of those things where you only have one student in the school. You, you can't just set up a whole program just for that one student. Uh, it's too mm-hmm. expensive and it's, you know, too dangerous in that way. So we had to try to integrate them into the high school and or the junior high at that time. So the first day I started working with him, his mother brought him in. And uh, 
I said, let's go, you know, um, I brought him down the hallway. I said, let's go down the hallway. So we walked down the hall, hallway and we were kidding, you know, talking to some of the students on the way. And then I said, okay, I'll race you. And I ran down the hallway with him in the wheelchair and all the way to the end. And I turned around and we came all the way back and he just cracked up. He just thought that was the best thing in the world, you know. And, and of course, he had a lot of friends in school and, uh, uh, you know, and I and I I noticed kids used to you know like not bully him, but um, you know make fun of him or mimic him. And I thought this is this is a good chance for me to teach the other kids a little bit about it. And um, there was um, oh when I when I got back to the uh, uh, what do you call it to the hallway where his mother was, she looked at me and she goes, "Okay, this is a friendship made in heaven." <laughs> and that was that was the beginning of it. Now, 27 years later, um, wow. he passed away on uh, uh, Black Friday, I believe it was. And uh, I think, uh, I mean, I've been his caregiver, his friend. His um, I was with him uh, seven days a week. Um, you know, mostly every evening. I would put him to bed every night. Um, unless there was somebody else coming in. Uh, we just became so close. Um, you know, and when he moved uh, away for a while, uh, the caregiving didn't stop because I had to call him at least three times a day uh, and mm-hmm. talk to him because that was such a big part of his life. Now, you know, most of his, most of his, the time he spent was in his bed. Um, if somebody wasn't there to get him out of the bed to put him in, in the wheelchair because his mother couldn't do it. And um, I learned a lot about our system for helping people like him, how how badly it needs to be um, revamped. And because, you know, when you go to another state, you have to wait like three to five months just to get any help. And if you don't have a family with you that can help you or friends that can come in to help you, and his mother was, uh, well, she, she's in her 80s now, and... Um, she, you know, it's, it's one of those things where how do you, you know, how do you continue that when, you know, the state can't even give you the, the help that they need, that you need. And, um, so, you know, he ended up staying in bed a lot. And during what I found was during COVID, because he was such a social kid, um, I mean, I, every day we, we'd almost, every day go, there was very few places in the town that he lived in to go to, uh, unless you were going to go bowling or to a movie or whatever. But to socialize, there were very few places except, uh, Shaw's, which was a grocery store. And I would limit my grocery shopping to like three items every time we would go. And by the end of the week, I had all my groceries. So that mm-hmm. gave me an excuse to go there and, there were so many people, the only grocery store in in the area. So everybody was going there and he'd end up meeting all of his friends there, you know, at one point or another. So that was his social event sometimes. And he got to know all the employees. He was just, everybody would just, you know, we'd walk in and the first thing he would say, Nathan, how you doing? You know, they were just so thrilled to see this kid, you know, and he had such a great attitude, smiled all the time. Um, Just, you know, unless he was mad at me, but, you know, we had, we had a couple of remedies for that. Uh, um, mm-hmm. I, I used to walk walk into the closet and then close the door and then tap on the door, and I could hear him in, in the bedroom, you know, like gigg- giggling and laughing. And I said, Nathan, can I come out? And he'd go, no. 
And then I would, like, open up the door a little bit, and I'd say, Nathan, please let me out. And I would come out, and, and he would say, yeah. And I'd come out, and we'd start laughing about it. You know? So <laughs> so he didn't he didn't stay mad at me for very long. But, uh, yeah. but, but I think being with the COVID, he had to stay in bed all the time because nobody was able to come in. And mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. I literally think that killed him. Um, yeah. He was just, wow. yeah, uh, the loneliness, even though I was, able to talk to him every day on the phone. Um, a lot of times I would sneak in and just come in and, you know, take him out, put him in the car and, or in the in the van. And, you know, we'd just drive around. We wouldn't stop anywhere because of COVID, but we would just drive around. And uh, he would hate it when I brought him home. You know, he just didn't want me mm-hmm. to take him mm-hmm. home. Right. Um, but, wow. you know, yeah, it was sad. You have, you spent many years doing this. So your book is, <laughs> called If I Die Before I Wake, A Caregiver's mm-hmm. Journey. What mm-hmm. what did you put into the book to convey the, the life of a caregiver? Well, the If I Die Before I Wake came about by, uh, as a friend of mine who, um, who had AIDS, and I was basically his caregiver. And every night he would say, you know, uh, or not every night, but a lot of nights he would say, listen, if I die before I wake, uh, make sure my check in, checkbook is, you know, he was meticulous about a lot of things. And, you know, make sure my checkbook is, is uh, balanced. Uh, make sure all the dishes are washed or, you know, because <laughs> if he dies, right. you know, right. everybody comes in the house, he doesn't want to have a messy house or whatever. Right. Um, but he would say that so often. And I never understood that. You know, and I kind of related it to the to the prayer sometimes, but I never understood the prayer either. You know, until one day um, a friend of mine had passed away, and I I started to realize, you know, how concerned they people like him were about dying because you know they didn't have much control, and it was like being a caregiver. I had to be the one to, you know, make that all happen, and. Mm. Um, so, you know, everything, and everything we do, everything we do, um, as, as a human being, we care for our children, we care for our dogs, we care for our cars, we care for, uh, that when we, when we go to work, we, we're caregivers of our position, we're caregivers of the people we work with, um, you know, when we when we go to school, we take care of ourselves a lot, and then we take care of our friends. You know, um, everything we do, in some way or another, has to do with caregiving. And even though we don't look at it like that, we we kind of act like that because we we do care about those things. Um, and the results of the our caregiving is uh, it becomes the results of the outcome of that caregiving. In other words, if I was a good caregiver for Mark who was dying of AIDS and was afraid to die, um, everything was going to turn out okay. You know, he was going to have a good mm-hmm. good funeral. Uh, all, you know, I would make sure everything was going to happen. Um, there was somebody that um, I, I was kind of his caregiver for a while, um, not paid or anything, but he his family didn't want him around the house because uh, he, well he ended up with HIV, but it was through a, um, a blood transfusion. And in those mm-hmm. days, you know, it was like oh, it was a blood transfusion, mm-hmm. so he's okay, yeah. But when yeah. he had AIDS, it was 
you know, nobody really understood AIDS at that time. So right. he basically, and he, he lost his job, he lost his insurance, uh, his family disowned him pretty much. In fact, um, I think his son was the only person in his family that went to the, uh, to the funeral afterwards. And, uh, that really got me. Um, and, uh, what I, what I noticed too was that, um, he was trying to, um, be a caregiver at the same time, be taking care of me so I could take care of him in a lot of ways too. Mm-hmm, so there was, mm-hmm. there was all these different things, but, um, that there were so many facets to that part of it. And he started to understand the caregiving thing. So, uh, on days, there were some days when he would yell at me. He said, don't you know that I'm, I'm dying? You know, like I would go out and spend time out, you know, doing some things that I had to do or whatever and come home late or whatever. And he said, he would say, you know, I needed you here. Didn't, don't you understand? And he needed to understand that I was the caregiver, but also he was a caregiver too. And he mm-hmm. needed to take care of me and my well-being um, so that I could be strong enough to take care of him too at the same time. So caregiving goes the gamut. It goes on both sides. When when you're taking care of somebody, um, like when I walked into Nathan's room, if I walked into Nathan's room and I said, Nathan, I had the worst day in the world, and it was like, you know, I just couldn't stand it anymore, and people were just nasty to me and whatnot. And here's this kid laying in the bed, you know, can't really control his arms and legs and or head and didn't know very many words. And even though his mind was working great, he couldn't do that, do anything about it. Uh, and he could look at me and say, you want to talk about a bad day? You know, <laughs> and I started to realize that when I came in and I threw my crap or whatever you want to call it, onto him, that wasn't there because he's going through just as much crap as I was, only in a different way. So when I walked in, my job as a caregiver is to uplift. And when I would walk in and I said, Nathan, hey, how you doing? What's going on? You know, hey, and, and just hang out with him for a while and kid around. And I always had a new joke. Um, you know, he liked to talk about farts. He thought farts were funny. Um, you know, there, there was just so many different things that we that I could do to make his life a lot better. better. Yes. Exactly. And Bob, we, what we have you learned? Mm-hmm. What have you learned that you you like a, a message that you'd like to share with the audience? Basically, that we you know uh, everything we do, uh, no matter what it is, and I've I've had a lot of years to think about this. Um, everything we do, everything how we look, how we present ourselves, how we take care of ourselves, how we take care of other people. Uh, has an effect on other people it's it's like like i said the legacy that that um we leave um and everybody everybody is going through something we may not know it we may not understand it we may not realize it um and a lot of times uh being the caregiver we get kind of selfish in a way you know we try to say well you know my life is worse than yours, you know, or, or, you know, they, they're trying to, uh, one up on how bad their life is compared to everybody else, you know? And when they start doing that, then it becomes, you know, um, 
a, a contest. And when that happens, it doesn't, you know, things don't work sometimes and whatnot. And what I found was that as a caregiver, as, as anybody, when you're, um, I find this, this even working, trying to fix up the house that I'm uh, renovating, um, I really care for this house and, and I want to make it look the best. So I have to really figure out ways of making it work for me and way, making it work for the house, um, getting people to come in to help out or whatnot and, you know, just stuff like that. But everybody is everybody is a caregiver in some way. And when we start to realize that on a really deep level and realize that everything we do is part of the legacy we're going to leave. So if you, you know, if you want to be known as somebody who's a really nice guy or, or a wonderful person or a great, you know, a great woman who uh, did some amazing things, um, you, you have to really be conscious of that and know that all the things you do um, are part of that legacy you're going to leave. And if, if, you know, I mean, and it goes the other way too. It goes the other way. Um, I, I sometimes talk about Hitler and say, well, he didn't want to be known as a great guy, you know, <laughs> obviously. Uh, he just, you know, he, that was his legacy and he was doing this all on purpose, you know. So mm-hmm. the legacy, the legacy can go both ways. You can be, you know, you can be conscious of it and, uh, want to be no, want to be the 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 person that everyone um, likes to hear about or whatever, or you can mm-hmm. be the one who's going to be dishing out all the all the stuff that's going to be not really popular. And right. um, you know we've gone through that you know in uh, different presidencies, we've gone through that through different um, social atmospheres and that type of thing. So, uh, but I I wish everybody could really look at themselves as the caregiver and look at all the things that they care for, you know, care about themselves, care about their family, care about the kids, care about the dogs, the cats, or whatever they're, they're working at. Um, you know, my camp, I cared about that so much that I was the caregiver of that to, to make it work. And then I became the caregiver of the people in the camp. So mm-hmm. it, it's kind of a progressive thing as you go along. Um, you know. Well, it certainly yeah. is a theme in your life. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Um, yeah. Where's the book available? Um, it's on Amazon. Uh, I, just, I just went on Amazon and I realized they said they only had one more copy left. <laughs> so wow. uh, I, contact, I contacted my publisher. Uh, <laughs> so they're going to fix that. But you can go on mm-hmm. Amazon. Uh, it's If I Die Before I Wake, The Caregiver's Journey. Um, I have a website that right now is under... Um, under reconstruction right now, so you really can't get into it yet. But uh, mm-hmm. for for further notice, it, it would be uh, authorelishaw.com. And there's a lot of pictures in on the website of who I am and what I did and and where I can, you know what I did in my past. Um, there's pictures of my son and my grandchildren and stuff and, um, when I lived in Brazil um, and all the different things that I did down there and whatnot. So. All of those experiences are are in the website and with you know photographs and and kind of a uh, description of what they are uh but mm-hmm. amazon okay. and my my pen name is eli Shaw uh the reason I did that was because of um the people in the book 
one I, that I just mentioned. Um, mm -hmm. And I called up my publisher and I said, what do I do? And she said, well, come up with a pen name. And I, so I took my middle name and the last part of my last name and I became Elisha. So, okay. <laughs> That's always, you know, it's funny. I relate to that because um, as a woman, when we change our names, you know, you go from your maiden name to your married name. And exactly. then if you get divorced, you have to figure out, now what do I do? What name exactly. am I now? And exactly. it's very interesting. It's a it's a whole process that we go through psychologically. I'm learning oh, thank that. You for, very, very, are you? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, so thank you for joining us today, Bob. You you have been well, a man on a mission, and it really is reflected in so many aspects of your life. It's really wonderful <laughs> to see. Um, and your insights into how we can be agents of change are so valuable. You oh, you yeah. took it upon yourself to do things. You didn't just sit back and watch. So thank <laughs> you for your dedication to the work. <laughs> well, thank you for having me, and I hope everybody gets something out of the book. Um you know, it's just, it's been a love of my life and it was a way to give, it was a way to give my family the legacy that I wanted to leave them. So, mm -hmm. yeah. It, it served a wonderful purpose. So, well, thanks mm -hmm. to our listeners for joining us today. We've been talking to Robert Kershaw, a.k.a. Eli Shaw, about his book, If I Die Before I Wake, A Caregiver's Journey, and several other projects he's been involved in. You might be able to take up one of them. Think about the legacy you would like to leave and what you would need to do or not do and include to create the legacy you want. So hopefully you'll discover some new ways to be an agent for positive change in the process. And if you feel so inclined, we would appreciate your support for this program by subscribing and telling others about us. We appreciate your participation. So thank you again for being with us, Bob. Thank you so much. God bless. God bless you as well. That's a wrap, everyone. May you find one thing you can do today to make a positive difference in the world. Bye for now, and have a great day. Thank you very much for tuning in today. If you've been inspired by this show, leave a rating or review on iTunes and visit www.rainbowsoverruins.com to receive a free chapter from Susan's book. On behalf of Susan Shireko, this has been Rebuilding Your Life, Moving from Disaster to Prosperity, sharing the journeys of those affected by sudden and great loss and what they did to heal, rebuild, and where they are now.